I never have to decide to write or build up the energy to write. I wish I think of people who, you know, like gym junkies, people who, if they don't hit the gym in the morning, they're, you know, they're grumpy. And I wish that it was the gym for me, but unfortunately it's writing novels. You're listening to Mic Drops, bringing podcasters to the Wheeler Centre stage. Feel like that feels longer when you're sitting on stage. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> than it does when you're at home. Welcome everybody to this live recording of the First Time Podcast. We are very, very excited to be here in person at the Wheeler Centre and with the Wheeler Centre and also with the wonderful Hill of Content Bookshop. The theme for today is second times. We have a, a couple of guests that we are really excited to talk to. But before we get into that, I want to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land and of the waterways on which this event is taking place. We also acknowledge any First Nations people with us today and pay our respects to their elders past and present. I think it's also important to point out while we're here talking about stories that the First Nations people were this land's first storytellers and the first creators of culture. And there's and those stories and experiences and knowledge are at the heart of this country. It feels uh, somewhat ironic that we are here talking about second times when we are, of course, the first time podcast, which we really didn't think about enough four years ago when we started the podcast, did we, Catherine? It was a time-limited name. It really was. Uh, Lots of people have searched for us for other reasons, and we get told that a lot. Um, In fact, on that theme, in this week's podcast uh, episode, Catherine interviewed Ben Law, which was a big get, and she's been very excited about it for a while, and he just launched straight into the innuendo (laughs) talking about Poppy's (laughs) literary cherry. And, of course, we have been told many times that uh, the first time that publishing loves a virgin... Uh, which is why debut authors are always so hot on the scene. But we are, of course, all second-time authors. I was, of course, over-researching tonight, as I tend to do, and I was looking for quotes on second-time novels, uh, but I found a research paper instead. And it is from Sweden. It said um, that the first book is both the calling card and possibly the entrance ticket to literary life. It did get us on the Wheeler Centre stage, finally. We've never all been here before. Um, But it did find that in in Sweden, where this paper was written, only 43% of debut authors ever go on to publish a second novel. Wow. So I want to know why we are in that 43%. Mm. Catherine, any any theories? (laughs) Because we're all rolling in cash, maybe? Uh, Yeah, I think the cash is definitely to blame. Um, I think think it's probably easier to work out why people don't. In, yeah, that's true. In some ways. Yeah. You can very much get uh, dazzled by the writers' lights. festivals and, and meeting other writers and, and um, not writing. Not writing. We do a lot <laughs> of not writing. Um, we are going to meet, obviously, these two authors who are in that 43% today, but first ourselves. Catherine and I are now podcasters, but... First and foremost, we are writers. Catherine Collette's debut novel, The Helpline, was published in the US, the UK, Germany and Italy and was long listed for the Indie Book Awards. Awards. Her second novel, The Competition, was released earlier this year. Kate Mildenhall's debut novel was Skylarking and it was long listed for the Indie Book Awards and the Voss Literary Prize. Her second novel, The Mother Fault, was released deep 
in lockdown really in deep. 2020. That's why the bright lights are still so astounding <laughs> to me. <laughs> I'm used to online. That's right. Um, so that's us. We also have two guests here with us, Yamna Kassab and Robert Lukens. Yamna Kassab is a writer from Western Sydney. She studied medical science and neuroscience at university. Her first book of short stories, The House of Yusuf, has been listed for prizes, including the Victorian Premier's Literary Award, Queensland Literary Award, New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and the Stella Prize. Her second novel is Australiana. Robert Lukens' critically acclaimed debut novel, The Everlasting Sunday, was shortlisted for a number of awards, including New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards in two categories. His work has appeared in Crikey, Overland, The Big Issue, Rolling Stone, Broadsheet, Time Off, In Press and other odd places. His second novel is Loveland. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Give a round of applause. Go on, yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. I've got to get the live feeling for the podcast recording. <laughs> so... It is an IRL event. We were commenting, Yumna, you've only just made it down. You came from Sydney today, but there were some issues with your flight. Yes, the flight was delayed, 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 and then I came straight from the airport to here. Um, Total celebrity move, though. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I made it on time, and I really hate being late to things, but, yeah, it's great to be here. Have you been able to do many events for Australiana, or is COVID kind of still having an impact on that? No, I think there have been um, definitely a few events. It feels a lot more normal. It only came out at the start of March. Um, but, yeah, it's a, th there was definitely a book launch, but in Sydney, obviously, there have been, um, you know, the, the chaotic sort of weather. So, yeah, the crowds have been smaller and, you know, people have been evacuating. So, um, yeah, it's nice to actually um, do an event, you know, somewhere other than Sydney as well. Yep. So that means even though we are a, an intimate uh, audience this evening, you do have to mob these two at the end of it, <laughs> a COVID-safe-wise, just so they can feel it. Robert, what about you? Did you get to do many events for Loveland? Yeah, and particularly the launch, which I did at... Um Readings Carlton across the road. I'm always a bit... I don't, I don't focus too much on launches. They're never really on my mind. I know for a lot of people it's sort of that's... It's like their prom night or something. Um, are you looking at Catherine and I in particular? Because <laughs> we talk about what we're wearing to the No, and I, I understand that, but then... Uh, and so I'm not cynical about them at all, but when I did this launch, I was like, oh, yeah, that'll be nice. I was, I was almost blubbing the moment I sat down. It was so moving, and I think it's a combination... It's, you know, it's, it felt much more of an event to me, like, sort of personally than the first book... Um, I think and that ties into things we'll probably talk about later, but it's... And particularly seeing all the people there, it was... And most of the people there were people I've met in over the last four years since my first book came out, and I was really... got all choked up. Love that. Um, <laughs> Love yeah. it, man, to, to bring out the tears. That is so nice. Now, we're going to start at the start with first books. Um, for both of you uh, reading your bios, I am tripping over all of the shortlistings that you both have received. Very critically acclaimed works. Uh, reviewed, put in papers, probably on TikTok, BookTok, Bookstagram, <laughs> all the rest of it. Um, but I want to go back to the moment that you found out those books were going to be published. Yumna, let's start with you. Where were you? What were you doing when you got the news that The House of Yosef was uh, going to be published? You know, I had actually submitted The House of Yosef to Giramondo, the first publisher, and I thought to myself that I should really leave Sydney if I want to do something with my writing. Um, so I was actually in, in Tamworth and uh, I think they sent me through a message I had not seen um, and eventually I did log on and see that they actually wanted the rest of it. 
Um, but yeah, I was uh, actually in Tamworth and um, I felt like, okay, I've actually made a really good move here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Special moment. Robert, the everlasting Sunday. Yeah, I was in the, I was buying barbecue briquettes at Bunnings. <laughs> and because uh, it all happened, my publishing happening happened very slowly and then very quickly. So I, I only sent my, man, I sent my manuscript to one publisher and to one agent because I'm a fool and <laughs> literally just printed it out, bound it up, posted it off to them and then literally didn't hear a thing, didn't even get an email receipt of having received it. And, so, and then 18 months passed and in the same week I got a phone call from the publisher and a phone call from the agent. They wanted to publish it and... You sent it nowhere else in that interim time. Yeah, no, I just kept. You are just carried on with a little my life. foolish. And so yeah, so I, the <laughs> the publisher had been in touch, and then they said, "Give us your agent's details." So I frantically tried to get an agent, and two days later I had an agent, and then four days after that I got a phone call from my agent in Bunnings that the book was going ahead. So it all just happened from <laughs> sort of nothing to everything. So there was no sort of courting period or... I feel um, like that represents the pace of publishing, though, doesn't it? It's yeah. either, like, a really long wait or it's... Yeah, and that's... And, you know, there's a million ways into it, but there's sort of the grind, the... Because I'd never had a piece of fiction published, even a short piece in anything before. And then there's the other way, which is hard work, <laughs> which is, you know, publishing in journals and all, and all the rest, you know, the way... The logical way to do it. And then there's printing out one copy and posting it to Queensland. <laughs> did you ever get... Did you ever um, hear back from those publishers about what had brought it to the top of the pile at that time, or...? It was, it was just chance. So my um, editor, Ian C, the brilliant Ian C, he was going on his first holiday in two years and he was going to Singapore. And as he was leaving the office, he went to his slush pile, which he hadn't touched in 18 months, and literally grabbed the top three books off the slush pile and said he was going to read them on the flight to Singapore and he had a seven-hour flight and he read my book on that flight and when he landed, he sent an email to the publisher saying, I want to acquire this book. Oh, so good. So just lucky. So much utter <laughs> blind luck. Um, Yumna, had you submitted to anyone else before you submitted to Germano? I have been submitting for a very, very long time. So, But I think House of Yusuf, I, I don't really remember actually sending it um, to anyone else. I, I essentially sent them... Um, the first part, and so when we actually met, um, when I met with Ivar at Jermonda, he said to me, well, you know, this kind of doesn't work on its own, it's too short, and that's when I sort of went through the archives and found other things that could go with it, but I, I don't think for House of Yusuf I actually sent it elsewhere. Hmm. Which is, I suppose, one of the things that we have learned over four years of asking people is that there is no right way to do it. <laughs> like, it is so often just blind yeah. luck as well as, as making sure that you're submitting your stuff. It can't, it can't be picked yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested in... We have to move on to second novels because otherwise we'll get stuck talking about first the whole time. But where you... When and where you had the idea for your next book and where you kind of hold that and keep it while all the first book shenanigans are still going mm. on? Like, what was the timeline for that? You want to maybe we'll start with you. Uh, I tend to write in a pretty continuous way. And so I think um, some of the stories that appear in Australiana, I was still writing some of the House of Yusuf stories. And the sort of separation for me was based on setting in a House of Yusuf is very much Western Sydney. And then Australiana was, you know, country New South Wales. And even with what comes after Australiana, I just tend to draw things together based on setting or, you know, themes. 
Um, but there really isn't a sort of, you know, a line where one project ends and the next begins. It's always sort of many things happening at once. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you describe Australiana at this point? Because <laughs> even in our talking about it, Catherine and I were like, is it, do you think it's interlinked short stories or is it not? And then, of course, on the cover, it says Australiana, a novel. So how do you describe it? Yeah, I, well, I suppose it could fall under a very sort of flexible definition of a novel, but I see it as an ecosystem. And so I teach science and in science we talk about an ecosystem being a community and you take into account the living and non-living factors. And I think that's sort of the best description for Australiana, that it's, you know, the, the, you know, the inhabitants of this town plus also the animals, the, you know, the greenery, and then also things like water and natural events and things like that. It's such a good description. Um, Robert, what about you with the idea for Loveland? When did that yeah. kind of form in your mind? Was it something that was already sitting there before Everlasting Sunday? I, I genuinely always find it incredibly hard to describe this process. And I'm always jealous and baffled by people who talk about this. Like, and it's quite reasonable that you would expect there's a moment where you have an idea. You're walking, you don't have an idea, and then you have an idea. Suddenly. That, that moment never happens for me. I've n I never, ever... It's just a, an accumulation of things. So it's, it always feels like there's these loose ends. Um, and genuinely, there, there's no moment where I went, ah, oh, I'll write a book about that. I think because I'm just always writing, I never stop writing. And so one thing just bleeds into the next thing. And I honestly do... It's always the point I'm quite a way into something, and then I go, oh, I'm writing a novel. And it genuinely is that. Um, so I never have these eureka moments. I wish I did, and it makes sense that you would. Um, and I suppose it's because we all approach these things differently too, and I think there's, there's an assumption, a quite fair assumption, that you might think of characters or a story or some kind of seed or even a theme. What's this book about? And for me, all those things come afterwards. It's always... Mm -hmm. And because I reject... I don't reject, I delete and throw away 95% of what I write. So I never put that... There's never a pressure on an idea to be something because it nearly all ends up in the recycle folder on my desktop. That's so interesting that both of you are talking about having this continuous and ongoing writing process mm. because for so, so many people, I know certainly mm. for me, there's like a dead period after a book comes out mm. where you're like grasping around to try and find both the um, stimulus and the energy to keep on writing. Um, what does that daily kind of, if it is daily, what does that writing process look like for you both and was it complicated by COVID and lockdowns? Robert, um, do you want to go? Yeah, I just don't think about it anymore. It's been so long. I've been writing for so long, I stopped thinking about it 15 years ago. I never have to decide to write or build up the energy to write. I wish, I think of people who, you know, like gym junkies, people who, if they don't hit the gym in the morning, they're, you know, they're grumpy. And yeah. I wish that it was the gym for me, but unfortunately it's writing novels. So do you do it first? So you, do you hit the desk first thing? It, it depends on my... Until lockdown, I wrote almost exclusively on public transport. So all of the Everlasting Sunday and all of Loveland was written on the train. Longhand or on laptop? Laptop. Work laptop. Mm -hmm. um, Thanks, work, work laptop. <laughs> and I would catch... <laughs> I catch the... I used to catch, like, the... 5.55 train, and it was a 45-minute trip into work, and I sat in the corner. Headphones out, on, off? Uh, headphones on, noise cancelling, no music. Yes. So, cone of silence. Yep. Uh, get out of everyone's way, cross-legged on the floor, and I wrote. 
And it was amazing. And I never thought about it. It was just this reef. You know, I did it for so long. I didn't have to put on my riding jacket and look out the window. And it was just... But sat you do have to sit it. cross-legged <laughs> on the floor of the yeah. 555 into <laughs> yeah. work. But I don't think about it. It's just, it's just what I do. Um, but I think sometimes that thing of continuous writing is... I know for me, I think I just write sometimes to avoid the more difficult task of thinking about what I'm doing. And I genuinely think it's a, uh, something that holds me back as a writer, is that I, I just keep going. I just have that... I write, I write, and then I finish that and go on to the next thing. And I probably need those fallow periods of self-reflection and self-criticism that I don't have. And I think that's something I'm really trying to bring into my writing because I've always just avoided difficult things by writing novels. Because <laughs> I can just put my head down and write. And it, and it feels like hard work, and it is, and I'm firing and I get, I get ecstatic about it. Like I'm, I, I genuinely get like a slightly manic state when I'm writing and when I finish it, I f it, it is like a gym thing, I imagine. I hate going to the gym, but some people who love it, afterwards they feel great. You know, there's annoying people who come skipping out of the gym. That's yeah. me, but it's yeah. after, I get off, smug, I after I get off the train <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I feel great. But it's, I don't have those moments where I sit down and really ask myself tough questions and that's something I'm trying to do much more now. Okay, we'll ask you that after the third book. Yumna, <laughs> you obviously didn't have a 45-minute commute when you were uh, no, living in no, Tamworth. No. How do you get... When do you get the writing done around your full-time teaching is what you were doing at that time in Tamworth? Yeah, I'm actually completely with Robert <laughs> on this one in terms of, yeah, it's not something I really think about. Um, yeah, my routine is really I go out every morning and have coffee before I do everything else, and that's actually my writing time. And I tend to say, you know, it's usually 15 minutes which is, you know, the duration of a coffee cup. Um, and that's probably why a lot of the stories are actually quite short. Um, and, you know, I will probably need a bottomless cup to actually write something a lot longer. Um, but, yeah, it's generally just something I try and do every single day, um, usually before everything else of the world and life actually intrudes. Yep. That, I, I'm inspired. That's it. <laughs> Can I ask, though, have you, have you ever had a period in your life where you had, like, a from a grant or from a holiday? Have you ever had, like, an extended period of time where you could write? Have you ever had a month where you... you yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, how did you, you know, I find, I find, you know, being on holidays actually fantastic. You know, today, you know, it's the school holidays and I wrote probably, like, six or seven pages, you know, just in different, like, sort of sessions because I'm not really doing anything else except coming to Melbourne today. Um, yeah, so it is actually nice to have um, freer time, but generally the thing that I say is that as a bare minimum... I mm. need to do those 15 minutes with that coffee cup at the very least. Yep. Mm. Okay. Australiana <laughs> and Loveland are wildly, wildly different books. Um, but one thing that they have in common is uh, the strength of the settings that they're anchored in and the sense of place that you both create. Uh, Robert, much of your book is set in Nebraska. The first question I have is perhaps the obvious one. Why Nebraska? Yeah, yeah. Um, First question my agent and publisher <laughs> asked as well. Um, it's so specific. Yeah, this. but it doesn't. It's, it's strange for me because it's uh, Nebraska is a place that I'm so intimately familiar with because since I was ten years old, I've been completely fixated on on Nebraska. So I know when I had um, someone in my family had a copy of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska album, and I used to just do the classic thing of staring through, going through the vinyl records and just staring at, like, Peter Frampton or Split Ends or something. And that Nebraska front cover, which is this really striking photograph 
from an old beat-up American pickup looking through the snowy hood at this sort of impossibly distant horizon. And I was just this dorky little fluoro board short, zinc creamed up little Sunshine Coast kid. And this was just such a mythical image to me. And I really, and I know for several years I had it Nebraska confused with Alaska. But, <laughs> oh. but it didn't matter because I'm it was just, it was, it was a blank space on the map. Nebraska was just this, you know, it was Bruce Springsteen and it was sort of snow but also desert kind of looking landscape. It was this place that I could just imprint anything on and it kind of became this, it was my mythical place, you know. You hear about the Bronte sisters, they invented this kind of world they all lived in. Mine was Nebraska and I used to daydream about Nebraska and it was kind of, but it was this mythical Nebraska. And then over the years I, I've read novels set in Nebraska, I read, I, I love, re my favourite things to read are these, there's lots of these, uh, road guides to Nebraska and like every street has some incredible foundation story, some incredible myth and that all just got blended together with this 12 year old Sunshine Coast kids idea of Nebraska. So to me it was just this, it was the place I would escape to. If everything in my life went irredeemably wrong, I would go to Nebraska. Have you been? That's the thing, I've never set foot in the place. <laughs> and it, and I really, I really have battled with that idea of going to Nebraska. So for quite a long, when I first wrote this book, I was adamant that I wasn't going to go to Nebraska. Why? It was important to me because the Nebraska I was going to write was the Nebraska of my mythology. It was the Nebraska, yeah, of my imagination mixed with this kind of learnt place. And I think I have a complex, not complex, it's a confusing relationship to this idea of writing place. Um, even though I know, like, after my first novel, I often hear people describe my novel as kind of a novel deeply connected to place, and I'm very suspicious of that. Um, I don't have strong connections to place. Mm. I've never felt particularly rooted to a place. I don't feel connected particularly to Melbourne. I don't feel connected... But I don't feel connected to anywhere. Mm. I don't have that sense of mm. place, and I'm very suspicious of it. And I think that's why I seem to endlessly write about it. Mm. And I wanted to write about this kind of mythical, imaginary place. And to me, it was this... The blank space on the map, to me, is Nebraska. That's the place that I've imagined. So that's where I sent these characters who had reached this sort of point of no return in their lives. It just seems so natural to me to put them on a plane and send them to Nebraska, even though to everyone else, they were very confused why I did that. It's a clever device, too, because you see Nebraska through the eyes of someone who's not native, mm. too. Yeah, and, and I, I tried not to tell my publisher and agent this, but I actually did so much research. I try and pretend like I didn't, but I actually spent years researching this, and I got in touch with the local mayor, drove around in his car and filmed all the streets for oh, no. me. I got in touch with, like, local historians, local... Um, uh, geologists, all these kind of people from the local area, but I tried to... I learned all that and then just tried to forget about it. But um, it just kind of all added into the, this kind of pot about it. But, yeah, and then, and then I wasn't going to go and then I decided I wanted to really, like, open myself up. I'm like, oh, I'll relent. I'll go to this place I'm about to write this whole novel about. And then I applied and I got a travel grant. Amazing. I was supposed to go in February oh, <laughs> 2020. <laughs> I was going to spend a month wandering the plains of Nebraska. And then it felt like... But, and this sounds like a kind of cheating answer to this, but it honestly was the moment the novel opened up to me. The moment that my flights got cancelled was suddenly this moment that I just fully embraced this idea of writing 
the Nebraska of my imagination. Um, and I know it would probably annoy a few people in Nebraska, but um, well, I, as I said, I'm suspicious of this idea of place. Yeah, so. and annoy people everywhere because there is this focus so much now on the authenticity of, of what we're writing yeah. and, the, and the truthiness of, of the research that we've done. And, you know, as someone who does a lot of research, like the idea is terrifying to me that you wouldn't have gone to Nebraska. But I also think exactly that moment that you talk about is often the moment that editors or publishers say to us, you've got to step away from the research now, right? Mm. Yeah. Like, let your imagination, mm, yeah. let the story do its work now. Yeah. And postscript, I'm going to Nebraska in six weeks' time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Get some uh, on-the-ground readers. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, Yumna, a lot of Australiana is set in a rural township in New South Wales. I know you spent time in Tamworth teaching. What was it about that experience that you wanted to capture in the book? Yeah, I think that the, you know, the minute I sort of arrived, you know, almost the first week I'd actually started writing those stories. I think, you know, landscape and setting are actually quite important to me. Um, I tend to not do much research at all, so I try and rely on the things that are actually around me. And I remember also, you know, with the House of Yusuf, it was a very big shift for me to actually go from these sort of imagined places to actually being, you know, writing about the place that was um, that was around me. But, yeah, I think that the actual... Um, just the landscape I found to be quite dramatic. And I was doing a lot of road trips in the time that I was there. And, you know, I was teaching at a school, so I feel like, you know, I was actually part of a community. And in some ways, you know, uh, in a sort of very buried way, you know, the stories are actually about trying to capture a, a particular time in my mm. life. And, you know, also things to do with the setting, uh, certain lines are actually the basis for a lot of the stories. So, yeah, I think it was just about trying to really document a time of my life. It does have that feeling of uh, rather than a story that progresses in a linear way, it does have that ecosystem feel. Um, <laughs> this idea that you mentioned of living and non-living things, how did you see that reflected in the landscape? Well, I think um, one of the things that sort of is a undercurrent throughout Australiana was that, you know, I'd come back to Sydney quite frequently and the drought was underway in a very serious way in, um, you know, in, in and around Tamworth. And, you know, each time I'd actually come back to Sydney, I feel like there was this sort of oblivion as to, you know, the, just how deeply that affects a community. And in, in many ways, you know, the, the stories are actually about trying to, you know, have a greater awareness about how water affects, you know, an ecosystem. And I think that, you know, things such as, you know, there are less, you know, shops in town, um, people don't necessarily have, you know, money to buy, you know, their kids, you know, their formal outfits, uh, you know, there were a lot of, um, you know, fundraisers and things like that. And it was really about trying to capture the sense of that, um, that I really felt was not really, you know, people in, in cities weren't really aware of. I love that description of the ecosystem. It was also really nice hearing your interview with Astrid Edwards and Astrid was talking about the fact that she just moved to a country town the week that she read um, Australiana and how um, seen she felt or she felt that it captured that sense. Um, I also looked in your acknowledgements and saw like obviously all of these people who had helped you out while you were there. Yeah, it was. it's definitely for um, the Tamworth crew and I think the sort of success or failures of the book, I, yeah, I kind of see it based on how the Tamworth crew 
actually see it. If they accept it as, you know, mm. uh, an accurate document of mm. the town, then I think I've actually, that to me will be the success with Australiana. Have you heard any news yet from the Tamworth crew on what they think? Yeah, I think it's generally quite positive, but hopefully I'll be, uh, I'll head up, you know, sometime in May to actually catch up with people and then we'll have a better sense and then we can know whether it's a success or a failure. <laughs> Lots of the re the reviews, you know, um, are overwhelmingly positive, but they also talk about this idea of um, it showing the darkness and, and the secrets as well, the, the fractures, I suppose, in a small town. I had this sense when I was reading it of... Um, being like in a drone above a town and then like zooming in on different um, people's heads and people's houses at, at different points. How did you manage the the structure and maintaining, I suppose, some narrative tension between all those small kind of um, almost some of them are really micro fictions as well. Um, well, the, the so the book is structured, well, it's five parts, and the first part, the structure is taken from the Arabian Nights where, you know, one story ends, you know, the next story sort of begins. You know, that's always something that's really interested me. And I think if you're trying to tell the story of a community, you need to be quite flexible in structure. I don't think a sort of chaptered novel is really going to allow you to have the sort of drone-like quality that hopefully the book has. Um, but, yeah, I think very much the thing that sort of interests me is a community but also focusing on the individuals um, and hopefully, you know, both are sort of portrayed. And I think if you're actually doing that or trying to do that, well, the, the structure hopefully has to be quite flexible. Can you tell us just a little bit about the ghost story? Is it Pilliga? Oh, Pilliga. <laughs> yeah, Pilliga. Um, I... You know, I really like vampire stories. I really like fairy tales. I like fables. And I do definitely like ghost stories. But a lot of the stories in Australiana really actually began with a line. You know, I'd hear a line or, um, you know, I'd read something and that would actually be the basis. And um, I remember chatting to one of my colleagues, Rod, who Pilliga is actually dedicated to. And um, and he was the one who first mentioned the Pilliga. And the line was, you know, you don't go into the Pilliga at night. And the minute he said that, I'm like, well, why not? <laughs> Tell me more. And then so when he was asking me later on about, you know, what are you writing? And I said to him, you know, I'm writing a ghost story. He goes, that's a bit odd after the House of Yusuf. And I said to him, you know, I'm going to dedicate it to you. But I, I think it was... Um, you know, there's this sort of uh, urban legend, you know, quality to the stories about the Pilliga. But it was such a vivid line to me that, yeah, I almost immediately started writing that story. Mm, it's very good and very evocative. Um, Robert, structurally, I wanted to ask you about the idea of writing a dual timeline mm. because it's uh, inherently difficult, I think, for novelists. It's particularly difficult to keep the, the tension going, but also you always have that moment where you're like, is the reader going to like May or Casey better? You know, is, yeah. are, are you going to just want to stay with one story all the time? Did you have challenges with the writing of that? Um, in a sense, I suppose it's because I, I've... And I, this is something I learned from my first novel into my second. And it's, it's a, a problem, really. I lean so heavily on my editors. And that's something, rather than learning from the experience of the first book and becoming a better editor myself, all I learnt was just to lean <laughs> much more heavily. There's these incredibly talented people who have got degrees and 10 years of experience doing exactly this thing that I... It's not that I can't do it. It's... Well, maybe I can't, but it's... Um, it's not the fun bit for me. Mm. Um, I'm far too addicted to this 
Jackson Pollock jazz approach to writing, this kind of just writing without, any, without engaging the front part of my brain until afterwards. Um, so I just write completely on feel because because I'm, I'm an annoying writer. Like, I must be a very annoying person to edit. And so I, um, I just wrote what felt right, and then there was... I've never edited like this in my life. It was... I, ha- I had the luxury of this incredibly long editorial process. My, f- my first editorial report, I got my structural editorial report, was 93 pages long. Oh, wow. I've never seen anything like it. But it was, it was, so, it was such a loving dissection of my book to have... To have someone with 30 years of experience to go through and heavily criticise every minutiae of every almost every page of my novel was just such a luxury. Um, so in, in in that sense, I got I got very lucky and I got very lazy in allowing my editor to work. So the editorial process went really full steam ahead for about six months, I think. That's something that is so frightening to, to mm. first-time writers, I know, and I still remember the beautiful piece that you wrote. What was that in Kill Your Darlings or the, about your editorial uh, process the first time around? You lose track after a while. I don't think it was Kill Your Darlings. It was for <laughs> it's someone. published everywhere. Um, but I think that maybe your editors knew that you were going to um, come back with a, a kind of loving response. How much did you change after that 93-page structural edit? How much did I change or how much did I change of the novel? How much did you change? <laughs> Both, uh, internally. No, how, much, how different does the novel look? Um, to me it was more, it was a bit like, if, if it was like uh, I was a band, I recorded 68 guitar tracks and the editor like kind of went, let's just have that one, that one and that one. So I just wrote a lot. I wrote too much. Yeah. It's what I do. I write too much. I write too much in each sentence. I write too much in each scene. I write too many chapters. Um, so it was really about calibration. So a lot of it was just in terms of sentences and the, the structural edit was, was everything for me with this one because it was um, in terms of sentence to sentence, they're not that different to what I wrote the first time. Unfortunately, that's just kind of the way I write. I'm not I don't really rework sentences. I don't really rework passages. I just rework mm. whole chapters or whole scenes at a time. Um, so it was just all about calibrating and moving things around um, and usually just chopping, chop that eight pages off there. But it was always in chunks. It was interesting. And I can, I can see this, the seam where the day changed or where... Yeah. And it's so interesting how often an editor will say, it's good up to there, chop there and we'll lose that eight. And that's the moment I got off the train. Like, that's the moment... My, my thought changed. Um, mm. So it's amazing, interesting seeing those kind of seams go through, but um, it changed drastically, yeah. And mainly it was just about uh, a long, baggy novel became a not-so-long, hopefully tighter novel. Yumna, can I jump in and ask you about the editorial process and, and how things were different between editing House of Yusuf and Australiana? Did you, you know, feel like you were um, in a different place to accept editorial feedback the second time around? Uh, I'd say it was pretty similar. I think the thing that I appreciate the most from any editor, and not just even the books, you know, there's also other things out there, essays and whatever, is that um, I think a lot of people call my style, you know, minimalist, which means there aren't many words to begin with, so there isn't really going to be that much chopping. I tend to, you know, write by hand, and, you know, there was a period where I did type my story straight away onto a computer. But I felt that then, you know, in the editing, I had to go back and cross out a lot more. So I just handwrite and then, you know, type it up. And, you know, it's a sort of longer process. But I do think that 
it's, uh, you know, I'm a lot happier with the sentences. Um, but I think in terms of the, you know, House of Yusuf versus Australiana, the main, uh, there were two sections, one in each book, where there needed to be um, quite a few things to do with timelines. Um, uh, you know, darkness speak in the House of Yusuf, I think there was a big structural change there. And also in the blind side, I had to go back and make sure there weren't any sort of contradictions. But other than that, I'd say that it's pretty as is. Um, I, I don't think there were really any sort of big changes. Um, I think m most of the time it tends to be quite, you know, words and things like that. It's quite simple. Mm. I like it. <laughs> what, feel, what was so impressive about Australiana, which is such an amazing book, I think you should all go, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, it feels so purposeful, that linkage mm -hmm. between the different sections. Like, structurally, it's incredible. Like, so often you read things that feel a little bit like a whole bunch of short stories and then they're kind of loosely mm. st sticky papered together. This feels so purposeful the whole way through and that thing you talked about, the drone kind of going, mm -hmm. it feels like the structure existed before the, the story. That's how it feels to the reader. So you either did a very good job sneaking that in, mm. um, but it feels like you absolutely... So I'm just complimenting you on that, basically, that it's <laughs> structurally it's, a, it's an incredible piece of work and that it all works. That flying between people and scenes and zooming in and out doesn't feel like a... a cheats way of trying yeah. to stitch some mm. stories together. It feels like one piece. Whereas it felt like a novel to me. Um, it's in an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem. Did it always begin and end where it does? In, in terms of? In, in just in terms of the, the structure of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, that is uh, the book. But I think the main thing for me is just uh, really grouping things based on setting. There was no purpose. There was no right. plan. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm all about admitting things. That. We have no yeah. purpose. Yeah. We there don't know no where purpose. our ideas come from. Yeah. No, there was no purpose. But yeah. thank you for that. No, yeah. <laughs> There's so much sleight of... I agree with you. I think there's a lot of sleight of hand in there, whether it was uh, conscious purpose or not. <laughs> um, one of the things that we always like to ask authors about is how they manage the business side of writing. Uh, I note that both of you have changed publishers between your first and second books. Um, obviously, we would love a behind-the-scenes telling of all the scandalous reasons for that. <laughs> Pause. Um, maybe we'll do that <laughs> off stage at the end. Um, but I want to know, how did that work? Do you guys have agents? Um, who or what helped in getting these second manuscripts um, onto bookshelves? Yumna, do you want to go first? Um so I think with the first book, I, you know, sent it to the one company and thankfully one company did actually accept it. Um, but with the second book, I think that because the book had actually, the House of Yusuf had been listed for a few things that I did have a few other options. Um, but I think the thing that is probably most important to me is that the book I see as complete and that it's accepted as is that I don't really have to change it. That is very, very important to me. Um, yeah, so I think uh, that's generally how I choose, you know, who I'm going to, to work with. But and, and I think it is also very, very important to have people who are very enthusiastic mm. about the project. You know, it is obviously the passion, the, the thing that is the most important to me. So when people respond similarly, you know, that's usually a very good match. Mm. And, and did you manage that submission process yourself? With the first one, yes. With the second one, um, Martin Shaw, my agent, is the one who actually yeah. sent it off. And I think that um, I'm not really good at applying for things or 
pitching things, you know, it's like I do not have this skill at all. So I do greatly actually appreciate having someone do that. I'd 100% go that way. And when you say you need someone who loves the book, I did know in the green room you were saying you're with um, Robert Watkins at Ultimo that he has made you some candles or, or purchased <laughs> you some candles. Did he make them or purchase them? I know no, he no, was he made making them. candles he made, in lockdown. He made, he made yeah. me orange candles and I think they're orange-scented. Um, yeah, Robert Robert is fantastic. I love Robert. Robert does go one, <laughs> one step above always. He's one of the greatest characters in Australia. And I say that like with a small C. He's, a, he's such a unique Person, I love him and he terrifies me at the same time. <laughs> I'm going to get a big head when he listens to this. We'll cut this part out. Be loved and terrified. By. Yeah. Uh, Robert, how did how did Love Land? Yeah, uh, well, as I described before, my first novel, in a very childlike way, I <laughs> tied it up in brown paper and sent it to one publisher and one agent. Um, I think it was two things really. I think part of me was coming up to the second novel. Over, I realised I just never. I hadn't submit. I'd never entered a prize. I'd never submitted to things. I'd just mm. never sort of existed in that way before. And I, I just, I suppose, I, I wrote this novel and I was very happy with it. And I wanted to see what it felt like to send it around. To be honest, and but the thing that really the catalyst for that, and I had an incredible experience with my first publisher, um, University of Queensland Press. They're amazing and continue to be amazing. Um, but I suppose one of the key things to me I realised after that book came out is you don't really have a relationship with the publisher, mm. the house. You have a relationship with three people. You have a relationship with your editor, the publisher and your publicist mm. um, and marketing and obviously everyone else as well. But that sort of day-to-day -day thing of those individuals. And after my first novel, the, the day mine... Everlasting Sunday got signed off. My editor left the company. My publisher left the company. The marketing mm. person left the company because it's an industry with such incredible turnover that, you know, hanging on to anyone... Because they don't get paid enough. We'll <laughs> from, just put that in. Yeah, because absolutely. Because they don't get paid enough. Well, and, then, you know, you get emails and it's 2 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. You see the timestamp. Mm. These people are absolutely killing themselves. Um, and so all those people weren't there. And so I suppose it was the combination of that, and I just wanted to see if this book could could live. And it was really gratifying that when my agent, um, Grace Heifetz, who's an incredible agent, um, we sent it around. And it, it, if everyone had said no, you know, it would have felt mm. like it was a mistake, I suppose. Mm. But they didn't, and it felt very gratifying. And, it, and just and it, so and then when I was talking to different publishers about where to publish it, it just comes down to people. I met mm. with someone, yeah. and it's who did I. Mm. Who did I want to spend the next three years having a drink with? Who did I want to... Mm. Who responded with that twinkle in their eye about the book? Like, what did they respond to? And I went with the publisher mm. that I had the best personal response to in that sort of... You have these little three-hour Zoom meetings uh, where they kind of weirdly pitch themselves to you, which is an incredible mm. experience. Mm. And I just went with the person that I wanted to have a coffee with, really. I think it's so important that, that we do do this behind the scenes talking about it because mm. I think for so long publishing was about sticking with a house and it was at yeah. a time when publisher, publishers used to pay to bring an author up and they would be prepared to make a loss on their second or their third mm. novel. Um, but now that isn't the case. So yeah. they jump us as quickly as we might jump them mm, and yeah. I think it's nice to see writers and agents talking about the fact that an author may move between many houses in their in their lifetime of, of publishing. And I don't know about anyone. For me, it was really emotionally difficult. Mm. Like, mm. I, remember I support the Brisbane Lions and 
People in the old days used to come to Brisbane for two seasons, they'd get a better offer and they'd leave because no one wanted to stay in Brisbane. And I used to think, turncoats, I hate <laughs> Judas. It was like the they betrayal. got this opportunity and then they left. And then, but then you, you realise, like you said, it's you have a responsibility to your work. That's how I started to view it as well. I kind of viewed my work as a person, like a child or something. And if you were in any, in any other situation, if you worked at Westpac for four years and you had a really nice time and it was great, but then you saw a great opportunity at Commonwealth and you interviewed it and you got the blessing from your boss, you, no one would say, I can't believe you didn't stay with Westpac mm-hmm. until you were 75. You know, yeah. so I mm. kind of try to respect myself and my mm. book just to, to, to exist. It's so, we, we always feel, I think you go into this as a writer with this kind of, with your cup out, hoping yeah. that someone will fill it with some gruel. And it's hard to switch out of that. You, you walk around, you put yourself last in every situation. You're so, it's this endless gratitude that only goes in one direction. You feel like you have to put yourself last and your work last and everything and hope. And it's, it's nice to feel like a contemporary of the people you're working with. And mm. it's an industry where people in the publishing houses move mm. at an incredible so rate. Mm. And it's got nothing to do with loyalty or all these things. And everyone's torn with these things. And you just have to make a... I just chose in the end to respect the work and it needed to find the right home at this time. Excellent pep talk by Robert Lucas. <laughs> we, we are going to let you have a chance to ask questions soon, but we have a couple of others. I'm really interested, Robert, you said that at your launch you looked around and you realised that there were all these new people mm. that you had met in the time since your first book came out. Yeah. And, what, and I know there's um, lots of authors here in the audience with us too. How do you navigate that very tricky thing, which is the fact that you your book comes out at the same time as some of your mates and a whole bunch of other Australian writers? How do you navigate that space of of working within the lit community that you're in, as well as um, you know for gigs, for review space, for mm. promoting each other's works? How have you worked out how to navigate that? You want to maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, I, so I probably have only been around for, we'll say, two and a half years. And I think the thing that I've, you know, one of the greatest things about having a published book is that you do meet other writers and, you know, you have this chance to talk about books and writing and, you know, it is something which is obviously an obsession. But I've always found that people are, you know, so incredibly supportive and really, you know, trying to look out for each other. There's lots of interesting things happening, you know, in Western Sydney. There's a whole, you know, gaggle of us, you know, writing and we all kind of know each other. Um, But yeah, I think it's actually a great, you know, feeling to be part of a community. And typically it is also writers who are turning up to things like Mm -hmm. this. So yeah, I think it's a very warm kind of feeling. Catherine, you had something on this as well. I did. Um, I thought that some great advice that, uh, I heard, read on a Twitter thread that Natasha Scholl started that feels like the only Twitter thread I ever talk about. And I talk about <laughs> it. Was it was a really lot. good thread. <laughs> it was a really good thread. Um, but there was a piece of advice by a, a great Australian author who is not only on this panel, but is my co-host. Uh, and that was you, Kate. And you said uh, to see the, the writers whose books come out at the same time as you, as uh, not as competition, but as, as sort of colleagues or... Um, yeah, to, to sort of see them in that positive light. And it it reminded me of a quote that uh, Bob Dylan had talked about as advice when he was starting out in his music career, which was no fear, no meanness and no envy. Mm. Um, and I really like that idea. Um, 
and I attribute that to you. Mm. Although I did also hear that piece of advice which I have given, which is to just put all of your writerly envy on one person. <laughs> rather than, <laughs> so I heard you say that. Yeah, that rather than be envious huge. of, like, everyone whose books are coming out, you just, like, choose one person. And I'm going to admit mine's Meg Mason. She's not on um, <laughs> social media, so it's fine. And she's now longlisted for the Women's Prize, so it's fine. Is it? I was going to say. It, it is Meg great, Mason. Sorry, um, I'm a great review. <laughs> I love her. She's delightful. Yeah. But all of my envy, yeah. I just, like place around her and her book and, yeah. and that's quite therapeutic for me. Yeah. Robert, yeah. what about you? Do you want to admit something to the stage now? <laughs> no, I, I, I happily would. I love admitting stuff. I, ha Good. I love okay. talking about it. But um, I'm very annoying and very zen about all this stuff. I think I have a very... Um, I think because I wrote for a lot... I don't know, everyone does too, but I was just very fortunate, I think, that I just... Because of the path I took in writing for a long time by myself and I wasn't at all focused on getting published, I just kind of... I have this very natural separation between the writing of the work mm. and the publishing side mm -hmm. of things. And the publishing side of things, to an incredibly large degree, I have no control over. Mm. I turn up to things and I smile and I talk and I very happily do everything. Beyond that... You're at the mercy of the winds of fate, really. So it's very... Um, I, I just can't control it, so I don't worry about it. Unless you get on book talk, <laughs> which, you know, you would sell millions of books. If well, you that would be nice, it. yeah. Uh, yeah, so I just... I'm, and as well, I, I found that as well. But this is also... This is, this is all I've got. Like, you realise, especially after the, after the first book comes out and you see sort of the reality of it, all I remember are the times I met a nice writer or the times I spoke to someone after a writer's festival event and it was really nice. I don't remember anything else about the mechanics of it and that kind of dry... Or, well, thankfully, I write literary fiction in Australia, so I don't have to worry about sales. <laughs> but honestly, like, what I remember... And so that's why, honestly, looking up at that second book launch, mm. I had, like, three old friends there and there was a room full of people. I'd honestly all met them in the last four years and they were all incredibly supportive and lovely people. And that's... That's what I've got now. It's all I ever wanted. I, all I ever wanted was to just exist in a way in, through my writing, to live through my writing. And that's all just to do... This all sounds very Oprah-ish, but it's, very, it's completely <laughs> true. Right because that's what, keeps you, like, that's what keeps me going, honestly, because damn straight it's not anything else. No. Uh, you, you know, it takes such an incredible amount of energy to keep doing this and that percentage we had before about the people that don't publish their second mm. I think if you don't want to publish your second book just don't if you don't want to probably if it's <laughs> just don't do it you don't have to do it mm. and I only just keep doing it because I genuinely get like the fuel that gets mm. put in is this genuine enjoyment of the work and these people it's like I feel alive now in a way that I didn't before because that's what keeps you going and so and you, you do get this class of writers that's what I feel like there's kind of like all these secret one day if the Twitter, if there's a oh, hack yeah. and all the direct messages in Twitter come out, the we're all done for. Yeah, we are completely <laughs> But um, I still have, for. there's a group of writers that, that I published with in 2018 and we are still in, like, regular contact. Yeah. And very weirdly, two, it's, it's like initially there was me and two other writers who were very supportive of each other behind the scenes. It was like, oh, because our books were coming out at the same time, we're all so nervous. And it's Trent Bloody Dalton and Holly Bloody Ringland, <laughs> who are the most delightful, incredible people. But what a um, alumni to be they, amongst. Um, yeah. yeah. Send but, um, you some, a few sales <laughs> is what they could do. Um, we do want to go to questions, so we should do that before we run out of any time. Uh, is there anyone in our audience who would like to ask uh, any question of our guests here on the stage? If you do, just throw your hand up in the air and one of the amazing Wheeler Centre staff 
will uh, come to you. While you are thinking about whether or not you want to put your hand up, I'm going to ask, is there anything you learned first time around that made the publishing and promotion, this part of it, not the writing, any easier for you the, the second time around? Um, Yumna, what about you? I probably should reflect more in terms of what happens in the past. I don't really think much about things at all, so not really, no. That is not, not reflected in your work, by the way. So. <laughs> no, I not really. I um, I think it is actually nice to be doing, you know, events in, in person, um, but not really. I need to reflect a little bit more on my life, I think. <laughs> I, I noticed you've made the excellent decision to... Uh, totally not deal with Instagram but to just have uh, Twitter? Is Was this a conscious decision because you're like, stuff that I'm not dealing with pictures or...? I Well, even Twitter is a bit of a question mark. I really don't like social media at all and I do... I'm greatly grateful for, you know, Emily Cook who does publicity at Ultimo um, to have someone who does that because it's the same thing with pitching and applying for things. It really is not my skill and I really don't like self-promotion and things like that. So, um, yeah, I am very grateful to have someone else who does things like that. Yeah. Robert, what about you? Yeah, for me the main thing was about the ex the expansion of mental energy. Mm -hmm. So when I came the first time, before I did anything, like you end up doing these like mm. a four-minute radio bit for rural Western Australian ABC radio at 3.28pm kind of thing. And I used to psych myself up and have two coffees and go over my notes and you just burn through so much mm. mental energy. And I realise now 95% of it you can wing it to an extent because mm -hmm. if there's anything I should be an expert on, it's this book that I just wrote. Um, and you can just in, actually enjoy all those moments, whereas before it was sort of feeling like going through. So it's just about that sort of limited amount of mental energy, especially after the last two years, just knowing where to spend that um, so that you don't collapse in a heap at the end of every week. Mm. I think there is actually one thing I'll add to this, and it is that, you know, I try and make my decisions based on whether it's going to add to my writing time or, mm. you know, take away from it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm, that is mm. smart advice that I need to take <laughs> on so much more. Were there all there is? I can see that there is a question from the lovely Imbi Neem, uh, who uh, is a Melbourne writer. You can get her book, The Spill, probably not tonight from the Hill of Content, <laughs> but at any other time. Um, firstly, I just wanted to say to you, I'm glad you got the memo about the dress code. Oh. Right down to the bow. Oh, my gosh. Matchy, matchy. <laughs> we'll take a photo. Yeah. Um, so my question is, what do you feel this second time around is something that you got right that you didn't get right the first time around? Um, I, I think that the... I think Australiana is probably a more experimental book than The House of Yusuf. I And I do think that when I think about the things I've written after Australiana that potentially if we hopefully look at this, you know, 20 books down the track, that it is probably going to be the most experimental one. And, to, you know, that is something that is actually quite important to me as a writer. I think mine's probably more to do with the actual process of publication. I think I... I just... I think because I moved from a smaller publisher to a bigger publisher, I just went into this and I just... Last time I micromanaged a lot of stuff. It's part of going with a smaller publisher. You can do that and you often need to do that. Um, and this time around, I just found some people I trusted, found some people I really liked and just let them do their job. Um, so this time I was probably much more hands-off in all the kind of pre-publication micromanaging stuff and that, I think, ended... Because who needs an author 
sending an email with their thoughts about, you know, just... <laughs> Too many authors have... I'm, I'm entirely in charge of the stuff between the covers, but everything else is uh, someone who's much better at their job. So yeah. um, this time was just not micromanaging anything. I'm going to jump in with a question because I love the projection of 20 books in the future. Um, what are, I, I suggest that means something else is coming in the works, Yumna. What's next for you? Uh, yes, yeah, so when Ultimo Press took on Australiana, at the same time, um, I was trying to make a sort of point, a creative point to Robert, and so I sent him the thing that I had been working on, which is The Lovers, um, which is a dark fairy tale, and he decided to take both of them. So I think early next year, hopefully, The Lovers will be coming out. I'm currently editing, so that's next, a dark fairy tale. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Robert, what about you? Are you a person who talks about what's coming next? Or you're yeah, just... I'm, I'm fine with that. I love spilling the dirt about Go, it. Go, spill the dirt. Um, I'm writing as I always do, but I think, as I said before, I'm, I'm trying to make a genuine effort this time to to reflect more and to just stop because <laughs> I just I just plough on through without thinking. So I'm, I'm writing a new novel, but I'm trying to do a little bit of planning beforehand. So since I've written sort of the first half of two other novels... Um, that I've put on the back burner, because I just did my usual thing: finish a book, just write the next one, and and it's and it's holding me back. So um, I'm forcing myself to not to stop doing the writing, and I'm trying to just do a little bit of planning on this one. I would love to see what that looks like at the end. Watch this space. Uh, we have a lot of listeners to this show that are also writers. What is the best advice that both of you have either received or will give to others? The, the only thing I always say is to not, to not feel like you have to reach that point where you feel like you know what you're doing. <laughs> um, I think sometimes people feel like that you need to reach that point before you can move forward. Um, and for some people it is. Like, I, I think it depends what kind of writer you are. But I know for me, I think writing from desperately flailing in the dark is a really interesting place to write from <laughs> because you solve your own problems. You, what, whichever way you solve your way out of that darkness is the writer you are. Um, and so to not clutch at solutions, just to exist in that state of utter confusion. Are these contradictory? Does it, does it, does it, is, is that part of an editing, is, is, is that advice to keep writing forward or is it, is I it, think it's can just, the two things hold sort of separately? I think you can just, I think that's just a way to write. Mm -hmm. I think I know yeah. I can, I'm, in, I'm perpetually in that state of, of confusion and darkness about things. Um, and I'm, I, I enjoy being in that place now. It's like being like at the bottom of the pool and just eventually you get to the top and you breathe and you kind of figure out what it was all about. But I, I meet other writers who are um, a bit hamstrung by the fact that they kind of feel like they don't know what they're doing. And like I said, I, I, I'm sitting there with my brand new novel on my desk this week and I quite literally Googled how to write a novel. <laughs> and... And I like being in that place. Yeah. Um, so there, there isn't, and maybe, and there's different kind of writers as well. There's successful writers who sell lots of books, and maybe they actually do know what they're doing. I think they still Google how to write yeah. a novel. Honestly, yep. I don't think you ever get there. Yeah. So I'm more just trying to give a little green light that that's that's an mm. okay place to exist. Thank you. You know what about you? I'd say um, discipline helps any project greatly, um, and I do think that it is. Uh, you know, it's your. I see it as my own little thing. It's my, you know, time to hopefully shine. Um, so yeah, it's. A, I try and just protect it with a lot of silence. I try and just be very diligent and quite disciplined about it, just in a sort of dailiness, so that I don't have 
that sort of distance or, you know, I start forgetting things to do with the story. So I try and keep it very close. That's excellent advice. I know that there was another question up the back there. Hi. Um, this is really a question for anyone on stage because I think you all have a couple of books behind you now. Um, congratulations. Um, I was wondering, as writers or maybe even as readers, um, when you're reading a standalone, like a series of standalone books, is it important to you about how a new reader would discover your work? Like Kate, um, for a new reader reading you, um, does it matter if they read The Mother Fault first or Skylarking? Because obviously they're standalone novels, but how do you like to be read? Well, that's a really, really excellent question. Um, I think for me, I am a stubborn writer and a little bit like you said, Yumna, about wanting your second one to be experimental. I don't want to have my first novel or my second novel as my calling card. So that's why they're so different in part. So um, one of the beautiful things about being a second time writer is that the publicists always say you get a bunch of new readers to you reading you for the first time who then go back, which is really interesting too because people reading in different directions, I think, um, mm. Can, mm. can have a real different take on who you are as a writer. Does anyone else want to... Yeah, I kind I do think that hopefully 20 books down the track that <laughs> they all speak to each other, that they they all belong to the same universe. Um, mm. I, I see them as the same universe. They're an ecosystem. An ecosystem. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Robert? Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I tie myself up with that idea about... Um, that's something I kind of really got hamstrung by a bit after my first novel. It's like, mm. oh, these things all going well. A couple of these might get published. Um, and I really started to think about how do they sit amongst each other because I just never thought, what kind of writer do I want to be? There's an assumption you might you might have an idea of what kind of trajectory you want to do and um, that tied me up for a long time and I've just decided to not answer that question. <laughs> Catherine? I would say most recent because I think you get better over time. Good answer. <laughs> we um, have run out of time and we want to make sure that you have time to head up to see Jacqueline at Hill of Content and buy a copy of uh, Australiana and Loveland and any other books that you might find up there. The competition will be up there as well uh, and get a chance to talk to these authors uh, and get your books signed. We, You have one second each, two seconds each to answer the question because we have to finish the podcast with this. Do you have a debut novel or debut book, any time, any place to recommend Yumna? Yes, um, Happy Stories Mostly by Norman Erickson Passaribu, uh, which was translated by Tiffany Tsao and it was just longlisted for the International Booker. Oh, wow. They're the best pair ever in the world to be listed for that prize. So um, Happy Stories Mostly. We Amazing. have not had that recommendation before. Amazing. Um, uh, she is Haunted, Paige Clark, mm. which is sort of simultaneously feels ancient and incredibly new at the same time. And... I had one of the most enjoyable reading experiences of the last 10 years reading that book um, and it's so alive and brilliant and you should read it. Perfect. Well, it, we can uh, vouch for the fact that it is an enjoyable experience uh, to read both of the books uh, by Robert Lukens and Yumna Kassab. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on the First Time Podcast for a live recording and thank you to the Wheeler Centre for having us for an IRL event and Hill of Content and to all of you, our beautiful audience, who have come out, despite the fact that we're still a little bit pandemic-y <laughs> and a little odd about it, thank you so much that you've made it um, a beautiful experience for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Yay! Well done. That did come up quite red, didn't it? <laughs>
That was Kate Mildenhall and Catherine Collette in conversation with Robert Lukens and Yumna Kassab for a live recording of Kate and Catherine's podcast, The First Time. This event took place on the 12th of April, 2022, at the Wheeler Centre, as part of our Mic Drop series, bringing podcasters to the Wheeler Centre stage. You can find more from The First Time wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercenter.com.